back with another episode of Gladio for Europe. I am Russian Sam, joined as always by Liam. Que pasa? But this time, we are also joined by my good friend Kevin, who's uh, probably had the most appearances on the show out of anyone who's ever come on so far. Yeah. Are you, is this your, your third time returning guest, I want to say? Fourth. Wow. Wow, what an honor. And hello, everyone. I, I, want, I want some kind of a word, a medal or something. Yeah, just appear five more times and uh, we'll give you a free soda. Sort of regulars club. Yeah, you guys can have like jackets and cigars. Yes. Also, Sam knows I love my evangelical fried chicken if you're thinking about getting me something. <laughs> All right, good to know. Kevin is here to talk about something that I know very little about. It's a topic where Sam is a little bit more well-versed and Kevin is especially well-versed. That being the Argentinian junta and the reckoning that came after. What I didn't realize is that there are two movies very intimately tied up in the end of the Argentinian dictatorship and the ensuing reckoning that Kevin very wisely recommended that we watch for this episode. Mm -hmm. Yes, and those two movies are the 1985 La Historia Oficial, the official story, as well as the 2022 movie Argentina 1985. Yeah, and so the, the first one, confusingly from 1985, won the Oscar for best foreign language film uh, that year. And best screenplay. And wow, yeah, so really swept. The other one you might have noticed was up this week, but lost to uh, All Quiet and Western Front, which was fine, I thought. It was Boo. fine. Not a fan. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll have to follow this up with a talk about why you weren't a fan, Sam. Oh, absolutely. But this week, we are not in World War One. We are in Argentina in the 80s. At the end of this brutal military junta, which ruled the country with a travel grip starting in 1976 up through 1983. Both of these movies deal with the societal ramifications of military repression after democracy is finally restored. But Argentina in 1985 follows the prosecution of so many different war criminals and junta leaders as a brave team of lawyers presents evidence against them. The official story, the other film that we saw, tells a more intimate story about a woman learning that her adopted child might in fact have been abducted from victims of the junta itself. She also learns that her husband is more intimately connected to the junta than she had expected. As you can see, uh, there are a lot of great Argentinian films, but Anglo speakers just don't really hear about them much. It, like, like it's a huge industry. It's it's got over a century of history. It's produced a ton of really excellent media, world class, but it's just not really that well known. I assume the situation is different in Spanish speaking parts of the world, Kevin. Oh, absolutely. Argentinian film is among one of the most uh, one of the largest and most successful industries in the Spanish-speaking world. Many Argentinian actors actually work abroad, especially in Spain and also in Mexico. Mm. And there's been quite a history of uh, Oscar-nominated films starting... Well, the official story was actually the first uh, movie in all of Latin America to win an Oscar, but it was the first of several. Oh, wow. That's crazy. That many and there seems in. to be a sort of particular interest in uh, uh, movies in Argentina that relate to the dictatorship and human rights. Uh, some joke that it's the only reason why an Argentinian film gets to be an Oscar nominee, yeah. but, uh, <laughs> which is not true. That There's been some others, uh, but they've done really well in some other uh, international film festivals like Cannes. Most of the international, most of the Argentinian film industry is actually subsidized by the state. There's an organization called INCA, which is the National Film Institute, and that sponsors the 
large majority of films, including Argentina 1985. Yeah, yeah. That, I know that that's true of most countries, or at least many countries in Latin America. And I, I know that, you know, I, I've had a little bit of involvement in the South Florida film scene, which basically does not exist. And uh, I've met a lot of filmmakers from Latin America who hope to make films in Miami, especially Spanish language films. And then they're very disappointed to find out that the American government doesn't give anywhere near as much support to filmmakers as the governments of Colombia or Venezuela might do. And because we're doing an episode about the Argentinian dictatorship, it's actually a bit of an interesting coincidence that we are recording this on the anniversary of the coup, which is Mm -hmm. now a national holiday of remembrance in Argentina. Kevin, uh, could you tell us a little bit about uh, how this day is, uh, well, I guess celebrated would be the wrong word, but how it's commemorated. Commemorated, yeah. Yes, it is now a national holiday. The holiday actually started during the time of the dictatorship. Uh, during the, after the coup, the military... Really? Yeah, they actually declared it a national holiday. So they, they celebrated their own coup. They, it, it was something, they were proud of it. They weren't ashamed of it. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. They, it was a, a day to commemorate, you know, basically how uh, the country had been saved by the military. And then when democracy returned, at the beginning, it was sort of a, a, a day to be devoted for a, a reflection at educational organizations, I think starting from 1998. Uh, and then in 2006, uh, after the Kirchner's, uh, the first Kirchner government, Nestor Kirchner, they actually uh, declared the amnesty laws a void and they reopened all the trials against the military as part of that whole process of sort of going back into the trail of human rights, which also turned them immensely successful. In 2006, they declared it a national holiday. So this is a massive thing over there, right? Yes, there's a protest. So even though the national holiday was uh, opposed by certain human rights organizations, for example, uh, some of the mothers of uh, May Square, you know, Madre de Plaza de Mayo, the one of the leading human rights organizations that fought against the dictatorship and fought for the return of democracy, they opposed it because they didn't want people to be taking, for example, long weekends uh, using that holiday. But it's also it also became an opportunity to make the protest uh, very, very big. You see tens maybe hundreds of thousands of people in the main cities of Argentina, mostly in Buenos Aires. There's actually two marches, one of them uh, uh, with the presence of the Mothers of May Square, the Grandmothers of May Square, like all the major human rights organizations. And then there's a, a parallel march in the same place that starts just a little bit later, um, which is more left-leaning, and that tends to be also critical of current governments, even if they're parents. And there you see the Trotskyist groups, for example, which are very big uh, in Argentina in relative terms. I feel like in general, Latin America, Latin American countries love having like surprisingly significant Trotskyist movements, you know, all over the, all over the continent. Well, with Argentina, there's very good reason for that because the Soviet Union uh, supported the Argentinian dictatorship as part of a Cold War tit for tat because the Chinese supported Pinochet. So it was like a balancing thing. So paradoxically, the official Communist Party of Argentina was not banned, uh, the Soviet one. Right. They, they did have some activists murdered, but officially the party was allowed to to exist and the Soviet Union actually traded with the dictatorship. They didn't boycott the dictatorship. Yeah, all right. Yeah, so... uh um, Argentina, that's where we're heading. We're, uh, we're going south of the equator. Uh, we haven't ventured this far down before. I'm kind yeah. of scared, but uh, <laughs> we have a great guest to guide us through it. We'll be safe, hopefully. Yeah, I guess this really is. Yeah, our first Southern Hemisphere episode. Wow. Mm-hmm. Slacking. Yes. So Argentina, uh, South America, it's the cone. It's summer over there right now, actually. Uh, but yeah, it's, uh, it's a fascinating country. It's the largest country in South America, I believe, unless Brazil is slightly bigger. Please correct me if I'm wrong there, Kevin. No. 
know, Bra Brazil is a lot bigger. Oh, okay. So Brazil is bigger, but it's the biggest Spanish-speaking country in South America, at least. That is true. Uh, I, I think I think Sam, uh, you might be yet another victim of the Mercator projection because you know Argentina is so far south; it looks a lot bigger. Oh yeah. Oh oh yes. I I, I hadn't thought about that actually. That would make a lot more sense. Also, I realize actually we have mentioned Argentina and Uruguay briefly in one episode before when we brought on Brendan to talk about uh, interwar revolutions. And one thing that he brought up was that there was a sort of a, a very violent red scare in Argentina. Oh, yes, yes, yes. La Semana Tragica. Yes. Yeah, there was actually even there was even a pro program against the Argentinian Jewish population as part of that red scare. Yeah. And I think that is a really interesting part of Argentine history that I think Americans are probably generally so somewhat familiar with that Argentina compared to a lot of other countries in South America, not all countries, but a lot of them has a lot more immigration from Europe, especially Jewish immigration, Italian immigration, German immigration. Absolutely. That is why sometimes Argentina is considered uh, the white country of South America. Uh, also, some Americans seem to be obsessed with the almost uh, complete <laughs> absence of black people. During the last World Cup, there was even an article about it in American press. Uh, but I, and I think that's also one of the reasons why the the rest of Latin America really doesn't like us, uh, which is the fact that they think we see ourselves as more Europeans. The famous uh, writer Jorge Luis Borges once said, if you go to Italy, you will find Italians. If you go to Spain, you will find the Spanish. But there's only one place in the in the world where you will find Europeans, and that is Argentina. Well, because like, uh, you're, is it because European alone is an identity? Is that what that means? Absolutely, yes. The fact that uh, Argentina see themselves as Europeans, no matter what country they're from or their family is from. So you think that, that is true? You think that, that it is true that Argentinians see themselves that way? Uh, I would say it's uh, definitely a part of the way many Argentinians see themselves, especially in the big cities. Something I understand is that I think that, they, like, from what I understand, there is a very terrible history of, of, like, you know, officially sanctioned racism in Argentina. I'm sure it was never as all-encompassing as, you know, Jim Crow American racism. But I also I think that that history does really exist, right? It's just that other countries in Latin America have a similar history, which might not be as widely known by outsiders. Yes, I mean, I think it's complex. Uh, there was definitely a, a racial hierarchical uh, a structure during the times of the colony. Slavery was officially abolished in 1913, and the official equality was established then. To this day, I would say you could probably find, in American terms, a certain correlation between uh, skin color mm -hmm. and social class, which is obviously not perfect, but it's today much less racialized than it is uh, in the U.S. I mean, uh, many Argentinians are just brown, and yeah. it doesn't mean that they're looked upon as people of color sure. or as black people. And this is in the context of a state that had an actual uh, constitutional article about the whitening of the country and how that's something that must be worked towards. Well, about the encouragement of European migration, uh, the elite that ruled Argentina in the 19th century, this was long before there was real democracy, uh, they were confident that, first of all, Argentina to this day, based on its size, is quite underpopulated, especially in the south. Mm -hmm. So they were sure that migration from northern Europe would be key instrumental in developing uh, the the economy and really realizing the country's full potential. And it, was that did they pick Northern Europe for like racist reasons, or is that because the climate was more similar to? the very bottom of Argentina. No, they just thought North Europeans were smarter and were better at handling industry mm. and they, that they would come with more capital. Oh man, that's like some, like some self-hating Southern Europeans, right? Like there's like, the, I assume the elite at that time would have all been like descended from like, you know, Spanish settlers, right? So they're like, it's kind of, that's weird. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. And they didn't receive almost any North Europeans, but they didn't receive three million Italians, you know? Yeah. And that's why uh, in this movie, you know, like most of the surnames, it seems like, of the people involved in the Junta are Italian surnames. Uh, you know, Macera is an Italian surname. I'm sorry, the movie being Argentina 1985. And then, of course, our protagonist is, uh, is it uh, Julio Stracera, which who also has, I assume, an Italian surname. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and of course, you know, probably the most famous uh, Italian Argentine these days happens to live in Italy today, uh, that being Pope Francis. And not only Pope Francis, Lionel Messi, the captain of the Argentina World uh, Soccer Team, the World of World Cup. Mm, and of course. His yeah, predecessor yeah. as Argentina's national hero, Diego Maradona, was also Italian-Argentinian. Yeah, uh, I didn't realize that. Uh-huh. Well, I think it was, we're, we're getting a little far afield here. I think we should probably focus back on uh, the junta itself. Again, this is something that I know absolutely nothing about. Sam, you know a little bit more than me. Yeah, could you give us the broad strokes and let Kevin fill in the details? Mm-hmm. Right, okay. Argentina received its independence from Spain in the 1820s, I want to say, and that's when they began to embark on this migration project to uh, get more labor and especially the valuable white labor that's racially superior to everyone else per their thinking. Uh, And so Argentina has very strong economic growth on paper all through this period, especially the second half of the 19th century. But it was an economy that was much weaker than it seemed. On paper, it it had a GDP comparable to like the United States uh, at the start of the 20th century, I believe it was, but almost all of it was concentrated in in the hands of a couple of people who were mostly in the commodities business, which isn't very conducive to actually developing an economy. Yes, and it was also based on large concentration of land and selling of commodities, mostly to England. It was the Mm -hmm. agro-exportation model that really went into crisis in the 1930s. Mm -hmm. And wasn't there also a lot of involvement of British finance? And that's when uh, the first coup of the 20th century happened, didn't Mm. it? Absolutely. Argentina suffered from a series of coups. They took place in 1930, 1943, 1955, 1966, and 1976. We get to study all of them in school. You forgot about 62. Well, 62 is different. Ah, uh, okay. <laughs> uh, we, can, we can go deeper on that if you want. But most of those schools were supported by the U.S., except for the first one. Uh, the fact that Argentina... Um, I mean, for Australia, it's about 62, sure. I mean, it wasn't a completely democratic government before it. Yeah, so there's this coup in 1930, and then there's a counter-coup in 1943, and then in 48, I believe it was, uh, Perón becomes the president of Argentina. Is that right? In 46. Ah, right. uh, Peron actually entered politics as part of the government that came about as a result of the 1943 coup. He was Secretary of Labor and as Secretary of Labor in a non-democratic government, he actually became quite popular because he was Argentina's first and foremost populist. It was, uh, this was about the same time other populist leaders came about. Uh, for example, Getulio Vargas in Brazil, who had a lot of similarities to Peron. And he was the first one to really integrate the working class within the political process. Uh, him and his wife, who was in, his second wife, Evita, oh, made famous. My Madonna in Hollywood, and Americans love Evita and hate Peron, paradoxically. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, actually, I just saw a sign from the Israeli protest, by the way, which is... Um, this is not Argentina, Bibi, you are not Peron. Sara, meaning uh, Bibi Netanyahu's wife, Sara Netanyahu, you are not Evita, 
and we don't want a dictatorship. And for the life of me, I still can't understand if the sign is pro-Peron or anti-Peron. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's clearly anti-Bibi, but I, I don't understand where they're coming from. Uh -huh. But anyway, uh, the, uh, Peron uh, was a very interesting character. He developed a very close sort of intimate, sentimental relationship to the working class. He copied many of the policy platforms from socialists and communists and actually persecuted them quite fiercely. My grandfather suffered from that himself. He went to prison twice as a student uh, political leader. Oh, man. Yeah, yeah, he hated Perón until he died because he was a member of the Communist Party. But uh -huh. Perón, regardless, he took away many of the left's uh, social policies. In the beginning, also allied with the Catholic Church, even though later he had a falling out with them and really developed uh, a lot of political power for the workers' unions. And they were very divisive figures. About half of the country was extremely pro-Peron and half of the country, which included uh, the, the left and the right, so both communists and the oligarchy and the Catholic Church, they were all against him. They were all parts of the coup that overthrew Peron in 1955. Right. So Peron, he's overthrown, but he never quite goes away from Argentinian politics. He remains a fixture until his dying days, literally. Peron, to really get a sense of why he was as popular as he was, you need to understand what the situation was like in Argentina before uh, Peron. As I mentioned previously, on paper, this was an extremely strong economy, a very rich one, one that had GDP per capita on par with the United States. And yet, this was still a country that had feudalism, basically, in the countryside, for lack of a better term. No sanitation to speak of, very poor schooling. When Perón comes to power, and in the first three years, uh, the GDP for the average person increases by like 50%. That's something that earns loyalty of a lot of people for, for the rest of their lives, in the same way as FDR did in the U.S. Absolutely. Uh, in fact, the, the Perón's even from the state and also the political party and the Peron Foundation, they gave away a, a lot of toys, educational material, bicycles to a bunch of kids. They founded so many hospitals. And if you, if you look at statistics, the workers portion of Argentina's GDP was never as high as during the Peron's mm -hmm. turning power. And uh, one one of the few, few things I do know about Argentina is that ha isn't true there basically has been a lot of economic malaise since the like early mid-20th century? Yes, so Argentina has basically had a lot of structural economic problems. One of them is the, 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 the eternal weakness of the local currency, which is for the most part of Argentina history being referred to as the peso. In fact, we have, we've had a huge inflation and the last few years have been quite quite um, uh, model years for very high inflation and also a big debate about uh, which should be the government's economic uh, destiny. The Perons actually uh, tried to trigger a process of industrialization which never became very successful. We never got to like the heavy part of industrialization and to this day the country still owes a lot to imports in order to, to develop manufacture. But uh, for many people, uh, Argentina's sort of natural gifts are with agriculture and cattle, and they see no reason why Argentina should industrialize. And there's also a political uh, side of this. Industrial economies tend to be more conflicted politically. There's a big uh, political story of union organization, mm -hmm. and that uh, really becomes strengthened when there is a large percentage of population working in factories, in concentrated places, where you can spread sort of workers' union culture. And the countryside has always been much more prone to marginalization, unregistered labor, and just independent workers not affiliated with workers' unions. So uh, that is very much a part of 
the dictatorship that is uh, being covered by both of these movies, their economic policies tended towards deindustrialization mm -hmm. and in a very particular manner also to open the economy to pretty blatant financial speculation, which was also part of the 1970s, you know, the mm -hmm. petrodollars, the oil crisis had taken place just a few years before. There was a lot of money to go into foreign debt and that's what the dictatorship did. They placed the country under huge crippling foreign debt. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so the thing is, you know, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves too fast here, but so that does seem to be an interesting kind of, so you, did that debt happen before the dictatorship took over or was that, was the dictatorship responsible for accruing so much debt? They were responsible for it very much uh, consciously trying to, you know, get to the good side of international banking by receiving a lot of debt. So it seems like kind of a similar story you see with uh, the financialization of the economies much later in, La in uh, Latin America and the Caribbean. I know that like Jamaica, for instance, had a really bad relationship with IMF loans in like the 90s and 2000s. Let's actually get into how this particular junta came to power in 1976. Yeah, and and the story of in the story of these two movies that we were, we're going to talk about today. As we've seen, Argentina has a very turbulent history with its military. Like many Latin American countries, the military traditionally saw itself as uh, sort of the enforcer of norms. And when said norms happen to be very heavily influenced by a certain European political movement of the 1920s, that can uh, lead to some pretty uh, nasty consequences. Mm -hmm. Because of this, at a certain point, the military once again decides to step in. Let's just go over the context. Perón comes back to the country in 1973 after finally being allowed to have a guy be elected on his behalf and hand power over to him literally immediately. Hector Campora, a very loyal dentist. Just a year later, he drops dead and Vita unfortunately is long dead, but the citizens of Argentina had no reason to fear. There was another powerful Lady Perón ready to take the throne. And this was Isabel very different yes. type person. Isabel is actually still alive. She lives in Spain. She's pretty old now. And there's a reason why I think she doesn't live in Argentina, which is that she's universally disliked. Now, it, I don't think it's fair to blame her for everything that happened. First of all, she was a, a vice president with no, no kind of political expertise. She was a lady that Perón had met during his Spanish exile. But there was a very complex context. For 18 years, there was no real democracy in Argentina. There's, so there was a whole new generation of Argentinians who were born hearing their parents' stories about how things were under Perón, who knew how bad things were under uh, successive military governments that actually took turns with pseudo-democratic uh, presidents, meaning that they actually came to power through elections, but those elections formally banned Peronism from running, and Peronism was the most popular political movement. Mm -hmm. So there, were, there was no real democracy, and also inspired by, you know, certain new models of politics particularly the Cuban Revolution of 1959, there was a very interesting blend of Peronism and socialism, and many young people became convinced that the return of Peron to power was actually the key to establishing socialism in the country. That was only part of the political movements that developed in the 60s and 70s mm -hmm. that eventually took up arms, believing that there was no other kind of exit uh, to this uh, political conundrum that Argentina was in. There was also a big influence of just more traditional Marxist movements identified with with armed uh, resistance. So uh, that sort of shocked the stability of Isabel's government. The fact that Perón and Isabel became more and more dependent on the right wing of the Peronist movement also really helped 
uh, developed tension and increased violence in those years between 73 and 76. And by the time that the military took over power, quite a large section of Argentinian society was supportive of just anything that seemed to promise a restoration of order. Mm -hmm. Right. And we're talking about the guerrillas here who were camping mostly out in Tucumán in the north of Argentina, but also in Buenos Aires itself. Who were these groups exactly? Well, you see a lot of ideological diversity. The largest group and the one that's most mentioned is Montoneros, which is an armed faction of left-wing Peronism. Uh, Montoneros actually was born out of a previous sort of ultra-Catholic anti-Semitic organization in the 1960s. What? Oh my God. Yeah, these were like Catholic kids gone wild. Uh <laughs> And uh, they became... And then they went to... Yeah, well, you know, in, in 1966, there was a, a different kind of dictatorship that seemed a lot more ambitious about its goal towards Argentinian society. At that moment, until that moment, every coup sort of came to say, you know, we're here to fix, you know, the certain excesses and issues with democracy. We're just going to do a couple of tweaks and then we're out. In 1966, the Argentinian Revolution, that's what they called themselves, they actually set about to uh, transforming Argentinian society. They were incredibly repressive against student movements and workers' unions, and all they accomplished was the radicalization of uh, the youth. So the Montoneros actually, they they make a a grand entrance into Argentinian politics in the 1970s as a sort of union of different political movements. They perform certain, what I guess you would call terrorist actions, some actions also against the army bases, against the police. They also coexist with ERP, Ejército Revolucionario del Pueblo, or the People's Revolutionary Army, which is an organization that's set about a very influenced by Nicaragua, and they were more inclined to sort of uh, encourage an ur- a rural guerrilla uh, warfare. Just to take a step back here, kind of ground this all. So basically what you're describing is that after the death of Perón, there's widespread instability His uh, widow, Isabel, is overseeing the country and multiple different guerrilla groups are rising up against her government. Some of them have these obscure Catholic origins and others look kind of like your typical rural Maoist movement. Is that right? Absolutely. Uh, Isabel starts hearing more and more from certain advisors on the right side of her government saying there's no kind of conciliation possible. Mm -hmm. In fact, the whole tension starts on the same day that Peron comes to power. Mm -hmm. And you see thousands of people go into Ezeiza, where Argentina's only international airport is located, to greet him. And after Peron has wisely pulled the strings, both on the left side of his movement and the right side of his movement, he openly declares that he has nothing to do with the socialists oh, wow. that he calls, uh, what is it, uh, unbearded dumbs or something like that. <laughs> he uses an expression, jóvenes <laughs> imberbes, which means uh, kind of like kind of like babies, like mama's boys, but literally means unbearded. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's uh, funny. <laughs> yeah. And he, he expels them. And there's a there's a massacre. They shoot themselves. Yeah, uh, and <laughs> to interrupt the terrible story of the massacre. I think that's kind of funny because I feel like a few years before having a beard would have been a sign of being a radical, but now in the '70s, that's not really true anymore. Absolutely. Um, and so then, and then it's just a sign of a lack of manhood. Yeah. And then now, uh, now that we're in the the hairy bearded '70s, prone, very old guy. He is born in the 19th century. He dies and leaves his widow holding the bag. Correct? Yes, and his widow actually sanctions, with the support of the state, anti-guerrilla uh, mm-hmm. counterinsurgents. This was the military's uh, wet dream. The School of the Americas had been established many years before. Yeah. Argentinian military had a, a sort of very... Right. 
high social standing within the School of the Americas, partly based on American races. Right. And actually believe that in the whole sort of backyard of the Americas, according to the Monroe Doctrine, Argentina, as the widest of its societies, served a special place. Yeah. Uh, they were using mechanisms that have been tried before, for example, in the Algerian War. And the military was uh, taught how to perform urban counterinsurgence and uh, torture and many other kinds of... Uh, you know, uh, horrible atrocities and criminal tactics that they performed during the dictatorship. But it's very important to realize that by the time the military officially takes over and expels Isabel from power on the 24th of March, 1976, the guerrilla movements were not a menace anymore. They were used as an excuse, huh. as a justification for a larger transformation of the state in the name of anti-communism. Yeah, the so-called doctrine of national security, as they called it. So from a right-wing perspective, Isabel did a very good job dealing with left-wing rebels, but then the military took over anyway. Then they kicked her out. Absolutely. During Isabel's government, what was called the AAA, La Alianza Anticomunista Argentina, Argentinian Anti-Communist Alliance, they made sure that 90 or more percent of the guerrillas' military power was absolutely vanished. They went into Tucumán, which was, as Sam said, the focal point of the of the guerrilla fight, and uh, they killed everyone. And they inaugurated a kind of uh, systematic annihilation of the left, yeah. which became rampant by the time the military took over. And then it wasn't just about stabilizing the country and uh, making sure that the state would recover the monopoly of legitimate violence. It was also let's transform Argentinian society for good so that we won't have a need for further coups. And that is sort of what happened, you know, a a full-scale genocide of younger people, anyone that was associated with what they called subversion in order to transform the country for good. You know, mm-hmm. they called it the process of national reorganization, which was a view euphemism for the dictatorship, but it also made sense because they were really trying to uh, change the foundations of Argentinian society. Mm-hmm. Well, before we get into the junta, the military dictatorship itself, just to stay on Isabel for a minute, it sounds like she was doing everything the right wing wanted. So why exactly did they kick her out? Was she just too much of a girl boss? What was going on? Uh, I Well, I think there's a, there's a greater international conflict Context. Before the coup here, Argentina, uh, Uruguay was already under dictatorship. Chile was already under dictatorship. And it was about time that the military had direct power to uh, even abandon any kind of pretense of uh, trying to follow right-wing patriotism. Right. And this is often forgotten today, but actually back in those days, Chile was a threat. Part of the thinking was that like, okay, so now Chile is a militarized dictatorship and any day now they're just going to swoop in and uh, settle their border disputes in their favor. So we have to, you know, we have to militarize. Yes. I mean, the the Americans, for example, and anti-communism in general, had no more loyal support in in Latin America than the military. Peronism was no longer a unified force. The Montoneros, for example, had killed the biggest Peronist union leader, Rucci, a, a few years before. I think it was September of 73 or 74. So there was no unified Peronist movement to talk of, and the military was becoming more and more influential. So it was about time to abandon any kind of pretense of a democracy, which, by the way, was always, was also like a sort of... Um, a, a, a warm sign to the markets everywhere that felt that, you know, Latin Americans were just not good at democracy because they kept supporting the left. <laughs> so if the markets wanted tranquility and to feel that they could 
successfully penetrate Latin America with huge sources of financing for financial speculation, the military was, and this is a paradox, the greatest source of a, a guarantee for stability. Right. No, but that makes sense. And that's the kind of thing you see in a lot of countries. Like, you know, uh, I think the idea that like the people are not wise enough to govern themselves is the justification for so much right-wing political takeover. And even uh, a handful of left-wing leaders, like I know um, Sukarno in Argentina, basically suspended he was broadly speaking left wing in Indonesia. Yeah, Indonesia. Yeah, yeah. He he uh, he basically suspended democracy in Indonesia under the pretense of a, a guided democracy under his strong hand. He could guide the people in the right direction. It's kind of a similar idea. Uh, you know, just before we totally move on from Isabel, I just have to say how crazy it is that this is somebody who is still alive today. This former president whose husband was born in 1895. That's just crazy to me. And she was the first female head of state and government ever. Of any country, really? Of any country? Of ever, of any country, yes. Really? I didn't know that. Oh yeah, it looks like she's, yeah, so it's she wasn't elected, I guess, right? But she's considered the first Republican uh, female head of state. Wow, or head of government. Uh, oh, actually, you know what? Uh, so actual girl boss. <laughs> yeah. uh, actually, hold on. No, I think that that's. It looks like uh, it looks like Golda Meir was before her, but she's right up there. Golda Meir was uh, in '74. So yeah, that makes oh, sense. Oh right, no, wait. Yes. Yeah. yeah. yeah that makes sense. Her, her, as the Wikipedia says, she is one of the first Republican female heads of state. Uh, but yeah, but let's let's go on now. So let's talk about the the government that we are dealing with in these two movies that we saw, both you during the fall of this government and what happened after. Sorry, just realized Golda Meir is actually not a head of state. She was head of government because the Israeli president. Oh, was that's head of it. State. That that's that's it. That that's the distinction right there. Thank you. Yeah. So yeah. So let's talk about uh, the, the the government. This yeah, government. This uh, government in particular. So. Famously, the Argentinian junta was incredibly violent. What exactly was the justification for that extreme violence? Was it simply because they thought that the anti-communism of Isabel Perón was insufficient? So they had to just kill, like you said, every. it was just to kill everybody who had any kind of suspected left-wing beliefs. And how many how many deaths are we talking about here exactly? So the, the actual number is a sort of dispute to this day. Uh-huh. Uh, the official number is 30,000 people who were killed or disappeared. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to say because we, we're talking about a circumstance in which entire families disappeared. So there may have been people who disappeared and there's nobody to actually accuse the state. Yeah. Uh, but this number 30,000 comes from estimates of the dictatorship itself. A lot of people think, you know, in the right of Argentina today, that this number is some kind of left-wing propaganda, but it's actually based on documents written by the dictatorship itself. And, yeah, and doing the math here, and I believe that that's basically what, one in a thousand of all Argentines was killed? Yeah, that sounds about right. We have some horrible statistics. Uh, uh, there was, uh, there were about 340 clandestine detention centers, meaning that they were illegal according to Argentinian law itself. Over 600 books were banned. Wow. Among them, many children's books. Over 200 foreign films and 130 Argentinian films were banned during those years. And there, uh, about 30,000 people were kidnapped, tortured, or disappeared. We have about 9,000 names for victims of dictatorship. It is believed that about 490 babies were born under captivity uh-huh. in these illegal detention centers, out of which uh, 130 something, I believe 132 or 131, have now been identified using mm-hmm. more techniques such as DNA testing, and they've recovered their true birth identity. Right, because these babies were adopted by often members of the Junta, which is the premise of the film, the official story. 
Yes, or actually bought by rich families when wow. emotionally they could. This was actually a tactic that was uh, yeah. inaugurated during the Spanish Civil War. The fascists and the Spanish Civil War, mm-hmm. they thought that just allowing Republicans and left-wingers in general to have their own babies would perpetuate this political illness known as, uh, you know, progressivism. Yeah. So, Mm -hmm. and this is also a way of disciplining. I mean, it's a horrible crime and it's a very powerful uh, sort of dissuasion tactic to think that people might have their babies stolen from them and then being raised by somebody else. Yeah, no, I think this idea of, like, you know, forcible adoption is just, it's so terrible for so many reasons, but you can... easily see why governments would do that. And it's the kind of thing that happens all the time, I feel like, in different contexts, always a context of repression. I know that, for instance, in the US, there's a basically genocidal process uh, that of across the 20th century of Native American children basically being captured and sold to white families. And, you know, it would usually be done under the pretense of some kind of child protective services. But in effect, it destroys these already very small, oftentimes, Native American communities. Right. And so one thing I have to ask here is that I was thinking about is that, do you think there was a kind of, given the broader context of Argentinian demographic policy, was there any kind of like eugenic idea that, not really, maybe not eugenics, but the idea that giving these children to supposedly better parents would lead to better outcomes as adults? Absolutely. There was this kind of a uh, idea of what a true Argentinian looks like. Mm-hmm. The true Argentinian was conservative, Catholic, uh, so a supporter of capitalism, uh-huh. a supporter of the United States. And the fact that these Montonero or Arab families were allowed to have babies was a demographic and political threat for the future of Argentina. Mm-hmm. So the idea was to really rid the the country of all kinds of subversive identities understood in a very ample manner not just as belonging to the left but also you know a supporter of rock music a supporter of the arts mm-hmm. intellectual mm-hmm. many careers for example in public universities were shut down because they were assumed to be based on subversive ideas such as uh, what I studied sociology it was shut down by the dictatorship and many of the sociology professors who were not detained tortured and killed uh, or disappeared they were forced to go into exile. Many Argentinians found homes of exile in places like Venezuela, Mexico, and France. You know, I sort of here, you mentioned uh, that fans of rock music were suspect. And that makes me think it's probably not a coincidence that the movie emphasizes that a lot of the characters are fans of that one rock band, uh, Abuelos de la Nada. Absolutely. Quite a symbol yeah. for youth uh, in those years. And uh, many, many rock lyrics were actually censored and many musicians were forced to, to go into exile. Actually, uh, Los Abuelos de la Nada, uh, if we talk about sort of intertextuality between our two movies, uh, there's prominently a, a song by Abuelos de la Nada when they're building the team. When you watch Argentina 1985, one of the one of the characters starts singing their music, and then it becomes sort of the background music that you hear as you watch Argentina 1985. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, one thing in that movie that Sam uh, identified is that there's a, a very interesting kind of scene where a guy who is, seems a somewhat obscure figure, at least, because he's a very short Wikipedia page, the Minister of the Interior, Trocoli, under the, the president. So this is this is, should give some context here. Argentina 1985 is set after the dictatorship, immediately after, but it's dealing with the legacy. And so this guy, Trocoli, who is a democratic figure, but who the main... Yeah, he's the minister of the interior of the government of... Uh... Of Alfonsin, yes. Yeah, yeah. Alfonsin, yeah, yeah. Uh, 
However, the protagonist, Thracera, suspects him of having some kinds of favorable feelings toward the dictatorship. And something that you thought was an interesting, Sam, was Trocoli mentions the diabolical spiral of death and terror. Could you kind of expand on that? Basically, as... As I understand it, and Kevin, please correct me if I'm wrong in any of this. In Argentina, there are basically, well, a more conservative and a more progressive point of view with regards to how these events should be regarded. Uh, the more conservative is this idea of like two demons where it's, you know, you have this entanglement between like these two great evils, those being the guerrillas and the military, and they were just at each other's throats while everyone else was caught in the crossfire versus this being an example of state state terrorism. Yeah. I'll be- I mean, there is definitely a more conservative reading of events uh, that you actually see in the movie, which is the idea that the military saved the country from further chaos and falling into the hands of international communism. Now, Trocoli was not as right-wing as that vision that I described, but he was certainly no fan of the left-wing movements. And in that uh, segment that you see there uh, towards the beginning of the movie, uh, he shows his true conservative colors. I mean, Alfonsin had a very sort of diverse coalition. Trocoli belonged to his political party, but he belonged to the conservative wing, what was called the Línea Nacional of the Unión Cívica Radical, the U. CR, which was Alfonsin's party. It's a more than a centennial party. It was established when Argentina had no real democracy at the end of the 19th century. And since its birth, it was it's always been struggling to about you know what its identity is. Mm-hmm. Currently, it's a center-right party. But in the 80s, especially under Alfonsin, he was, uh, the party was mostly center-left. The, the dictatorship had sort of pushed the party towards the left, but at the same time, they had never refused to participate in elections where Peronism was bad. So their commitment towards democracy had a lot to be discussed. And Trocoli in particular, and even the report that was uh, published after Democracy Return by Conadep, the vision that the Conadep report uh, says in its original prologue, which was changed, by the way, under the Kirchners, but that's that's jumping in time a lot, uh, basically said, you know, Argentinian society fell as a victim of two great violences, both on the left and the right side of the political spectrum. Mm -hmm. Meaning, first of all, uh, it's a bit of an apologetic version. It doesn't get to the point of justifying the crimes of the dictatorship. In fact, the report very much condemns them. But it does provide some kind of justification for how a coup came to be. And it is ultimately a sort of depoliticized version of history in which left-wing violence in in, in the context of limited or banned democracy seemed to be equated with violence coming from the state. Yeah, and that that, that, that reminds me a lot, this is totally far afield here, but that reminds me how in like modern nationalists in Eastern Europe today, a lot of them have the belief that that uh, you know Soviet activities in World War II were actually as bad as the Nazis doing the Holocaust, and therefore like those should be considered equivalent evils. It, it kind of seems like a similar false equivalency here, saying that like you know the, that the supposed or real or imagined violence by left wing figures resisting the dictatorship basically was just as bad as the dictatorship, and then in effect justified the dictatorship. Yes, I mean I, I think it's a reading that has pretty long long 
long-term consequences in the way many Argentinians look at their past. I think it's a reading that has caused a great deal of pain and a great deal of loss towards political activism because it is ultimately a point of view that seems to say, you know, resistance towards dictatorship and resistance towards state violence contributed to more violence. Uh, so what were left-wing militants supposed to do? Just lay down their arms and accept reality as it was? It seems to sort of justify political mediocrity, mediocrity and lukewarmness in the face of injustice. And that theory of two demons has been discussed a lot under the Kirchner's government when the amnesty laws were declared anti-constitutional, they actually added a new prologue to the report by CONADEP, the National Commission for Disappeared People, explicitly saying these were not two demons, there was one very large demon, and that demon was state terrorism. There's no way of equating state terrorism with any kind of action done by the left-wing guerrillas, even when these were objectionable ethically and when there were civilian casualties it's not the same as state terrorism it was not as systematic it was not as widespread and it was not a as as terrible as the issue that is being discussed now just kind of move forward here uh we've talked a lot about kind of like the, the crimes of the dictatorship and how it came to be what exact so you're saying that the dictatorship basically they took out all this debt in a failed attempt to you know, industrialize the, the country, basically, or not industrialize, but kind of modernize the Argentinian economy. What else besides slaughter did the Argentinian dictatorship get up to? Like, what, what were kind of what were its policies at this time? Well, in, in, in there were a lot of policies being implemented. The financially, economically, the the coup in 1976, and the there were four presidents, by the way, under the dictatorship. Uh, some of them, I mean, all of them, I think you see in the movie. Some of them are mentioned. Some of them are more discussed. Perhaps the bloodiest one was the first one, Videla. But also towards the end of the dictatorship, uh, you know, the president was. You also see like the Malvinas War or the Falklands War. Some people outside of Argentina call it. Um, uh, and uh, that also brought about actually a, a, a little known fact outside of Argentina about 650 Argentinian soldiers died during the war but uh, if you look at it today more former soldiers have died of suicide than the actual soldiers who died during the war oh really wow yes yes and that is all, I mean, obviously, suicide is a complex decision and probably achieved by a multitude of factors. But we do know a lot of younger Argentinian men uh, went through a terrible time for a war that the country was not prepared for. Yeah. That we had no chance of winning. That media uh, was an accomplice of yeah. uh, saying that we were winning when, in fact, we were getting our asses kicked. And it was a terrible injustice. And many of them went through a terrible, terrible time that ultimately ended in their death. Aside from this, uh, during the dictatorship, you see many schools factories, police stations, military headquarters that became clandestine torture and extermination mm-hmm. centers. Uh, we know a lot about the torture that took place uh, there. We know that certain minorities, such as LGBTQ Argentinians and Jewish Argentinians, were tortured extra uh, oh, yeah. because they were seen mm-hmm. as a particular threat. Yeah, Jewish prisoners were kept in cells with a bunch of Nazi insignia in it. Oh. God. Yes, there's uh, among the 30,000 victims of the dictatorship, it is believed that 1,900 were Jewish. Uh, there's sort of two hypotheses mm-hmm. about this. One is that the fact that, yes, there were swastikas and 
testimonies of Jewish prisoners who were tortured extra. Uh, I have a, a friend whose uncle, he's named after his uncle, and he was killed on the same day that he uh, mm -hmm. arrived at his extermination center because they stripped him naked and so that he was circumcised. Whoa! And the, the other hypothesis that sort of explains, you know, uh, at this time, Argentinian Jewish population is about 1%, so uh, 1,900 victims mm -hmm. is de definitely an over proportion of victims. But also, if you think about the way the, the Jewish population was, and to, the, to this day still is, overrepresented in politics, overrepresented in urban centers, in media, in the entertainment industry, in academia, and though all those sectors were seen as, you know, suspects of the regime. So it also makes sense that there's a certain overrepression. I think though both explanations can be right, Yeah. Uh, but it, it is an interesting debate about, you know, the extent to which... Yeah, and then it looks so much like the justification of the anti-Semitism in Eastern European countries at the around this time, or not around this time, but decades prior, you know, like the intro warriors. Absolutely. I guess what I'd like to ask is, using their own criteria, how successful was the Junta at doing what it wanted to do? That's a good question. Uh, I believe it was successful in the sense that uh, the 1980s return to democracy did not imply a shift away from economic policies. It did not imply an actual government policy of going after people who were involved in dictatorship. In fact, the return to democracy meant pardoning the large majority of the military who was responsible for human rights atrocities. And it did not imply a return to politics as it was before the coup. The big goal of the dictatorship was to reorganize the way society interacted and the way politics came about in Argentina and to establish free market capitalism as the unquestionable way of organizing the country under the auspices of the U.S. Mm -hmm. And in that regard, for, for decades, there was no questioning, no massive questioning, no systemic questioning of the way Argentina was organized. And uh, I would say that for the mar large part, the economic institutions and dynamics of the dictatorship were actually a big part of Argentinian society up until the 21st century. A whole generation of, uh, of, of student activists and union activists was completely annihilated. And that meant that it took a long time until Argentinians openly discussed the politics and openly questioned the system. Uh, based on, on the experience of the 70s and 80s. And that makes me think that in a terrible way, it, it, it was effective, right? Like, it, it removed so many people from society who might have been able to bring Argentine society in a more equitable direction, who were now, they, they were gone. They, they're, that The work that could have been done would not be done, even if the dictatorship was no longer in power. Absolutely. And in order to really cement the job, you get this version of history where the left wing and the right wing share equal responsibility for such a tragic episode of history. Because, you know, because like... The, when we're talking about this kind of human cost on the individual level, that just means that so much individual human creativity and potential is stripped. You know, it's robbed from all people of Argentina when it comes to cultural production, science, science and literature. Absolutely. You mentioned earlier that uh, the Falklands War, which was not did not the Malvinas War in Argentina, didn't go well for the Argentinian military. That only happened about four years, I want to say, before the end of the junta. Was there a connection there? No, that, that happened uh, the year before. Oh, I didn't realize that. That was longer than, yeah, sooner than I thought. So, so that, there has to be some kind of link there, right? Like, Absolutely. How did the end, how did the end of, the, basically the defeat in the Malvinas War affect, you know, 
belief in the government. Basically, uh, under uh, under Galtieri, the government was already quite vulnerable. There was a rampant inflation. The GDP was actually shrinking during those years. And the government decides to uh, really push what was actually a very popular nationalist claim, which was recovering the Malvinas, which had been under British occupation for about a century. Uh, now, even though this was a popular nationalist claim, and uh, I would say most Argentinians to this day still believe Malvinas are actually Argentinian, and it's a big national symbol, uh, there was no way that the war would be won. Uh, Margaret Thatcher was in power in the UK at the time. She was not particularly flexible to the idea that Argentinians were being obligated to be in this war. There were a lot of protests in support of the government, uh, what they were doing to recover the Malvinas. And that, for a while, hid uh, the reality of the human rights violations and the terrible uh, economic failures that were bringing about a, a large like human crisis. Now, obviously, you can hide reality for a certain amount of time. So even with censored media, they weren't able to hide the fact that Argentina lost and had to uh, surrender. Uh, it seemed that a certain part of the calculation for the Argentinian government was that the U.S. would actually support yeah, Argentina in the war. I would send their own troops. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think Ronald Reagan is going to declare war against Margaret Thatcher's England. Sorry, guys. Now, this obviously came at a great cost. 650 young men lost their lives during that war. And we know today that there's more former combatants that have died of suicide after the war than those who actually died right. during it. How did the dictatorship end exactly? They had this uh, a disastrous war, the economy was in the gutter, and people were finally starting to, you know, feel a lot of discontent. How did they decide to transition to a civilian government? Right, so eventually uh, the news that we had lost the war came out as a big blow against the government. Uh, there was also the work of human rights organizations that helped uh, bring down the dictatorship. There was international pressure to finish the dictatorship. Uh, and eventually, in July 82, there's one last change in government and in which the, the army, as opposed to the Navy and the Air Force, they, cut, they take out the complete leadership of the uh, military regime. This is Bignone. E eventually, there's another switch, switch of government. And you could see that it was kind of a mess. In October 1982, that was the last de facto president, actually the only one who wasn't put on trial because of human rights atrocities, because people saw him as a transitional candidate. They had absolutely no support. I would say a lot of international support was also taken away. And that's when they decide that this will be the end of the process and that Argentina is going to have democratic and fair presidential elections. And that happened in, in 1983. And uh, the winner was Raúl Alfonsín of the Unión Cívica Radical Party. So let's switch gears a bit. We've spent a fair bit of time establishing the context and, and how the dictatorship operated as well as ended. Uh, but now... Because Argentina in 1985 is fundamentally a courtroom drama, we have to talk about the law. You can't get around that. Um, I guess to begin, I would ask, how did the judicial system function under the junta? Um, it's not like they made a totally clean break with it, from what I understand, right? No, absolutely not. Uh, they, they, I mean, the clear break was in, in, in parliament, in Congress, uh, but the judicial power actually continued to operate. So some people throughout the dictatorship, they tried to, for example, file a habeas corpus before the judicial power. Now, 
uh, what happened was a lot of people had been illegally abducted. So uh, the executive power had actually taken prerogatives that made it basically unchallengeable by the judicial power. So some people were taken by the state into detention centers that were illegal from the very same perspective of the law. Yeah, and this isn't really explored in the movie at all, but in Argentina in 1985, when the prosecution team is meeting with the Madres de la Plaza de Mayo, we get a throwaway reference to the fact that Stracera did nothing during the a dictatorship. And that's the only indication we get that this guy wasn't uh, nearly as... A hero. <laughs> yeah, nearly as much of a hero as the movie pumps him up to be. First of all, you can pose the question, what could he have done, right? Which is, you know, what can a single person do in the face of institutional massive right. human rights violations and a systematic plan to transform the government and to annihilate a certain part of society? Now, obviously, you could say, well, the noble thing would have been to quit. The noble thing would have been to go into exile. I... I don't know if I'm in a position to judge, but I think it does pose an issue. And I think in any kind of historical process of terrible atrocities, what would I have done? This question is posed both in reference to Strasera's record, but also becomes a very big question later after democracy returned. President Alfonsín, who actually wins the elections in 1983, he ends up putting a stop to all the trials against the military through two laws. One is Punto Final, which basically says any kind of lawsuit that is not filed up until this date cannot be filed in terms of human rights violations and the crimes of the military. And that really dissuaded or prevented a lot of politi- judicial processes to start after the uh, after democracy returned. And the other one is obediencia de vida, which basically says, you know, if you were following orders and you can make the argument that not following orders would have put your life on, uh, at risk, then uh, you're not liable for the crimes in which you were complicit. I, I think this is a big uh, issue of debate in any kind of, you know, this was an issue of debate after the Holocaust, who was following orders, who was not, what are uh, the expectations of a soldier in terms of orders that violate human rights in any kind of hierarchical organization like the military. I think this is an issue that should be debated in terms of many, many historical episodes. Right. Okay. So if I'm understanding you correctly, Stracera's sin, for lack of a better word, isn't that he was a collaborationist per se, but had that he literally did nothing. Exactly. They're not saying he was complicit in human rights violations. He's saying like, you you acted like a like turtle. Yes. <laughs> or an ostrich. You hid your, your face beneath the ground just to save your own butt and maintain your career in the judicial power while all these things were going on. And there was no way you could have been oblivious to that if you know all this now. Right, of course. Okay, so we transition into democracy, and this also marks the beginning of something that's called transitional justice. What is that exactly? And how does it proceed in most cases? Well, traditional justice basically refers to the way societies uh, recompose their social fabric after uh, episodes of massive and serious violation of human rights. We've had questions of uh, transitional justice, for example, after the Rwandan genocide, after uh, the war in Yugoslavia. This has to do, first of all, with idea of a society that became very broken, but also the fact that you're talking about situations in which a very large part of society has to go through some kind of process to see justice. Now, in many cases, these issues of transitional justice, they were uh, implemented by, for example, international courts or by winners' courts in in case of war. Argentina is very unique in the sense 
that civilian courts within Argentinian society tried Argentinians themselves when democracy returned. From what I understand, there are many different issues in transitional justice, but from from what I've read, it seems that the biggest one is sort of the tension between the retroactivity of the law, in other words, laws being passed which would apply to the past, and the needs of transitional justice. And I understand that this was a very big struggle in the Argentinian example. Could you get into it a little bit? Yeah, so basically, at some point, this idea of transitional justice, even retributive justice, involves checking back the legality of some measures that were passed, even by institutional frameworks. For example, if you consider the fact that uh, the coup was legal and unconstitutional, then even measures that were made to dispose of uh, subversive movements or in the name of a societal order, they can be reviewed as illegal. Basically, this uh, the, the whole articulated experience was, uh, which was, by the way, held by, by human rights organizations, which continued the, the struggle during those very dark years of amnesty. It meant acknowledging that certain orders and certain policies could not be legal under a, any measure. And as part of transitional justice, there is usually some kind of uh, national reconciliation process. And in Argentina, this took the form of the CONADEP, the National Commission on the Disappearance of persons. What exactly was CONADEP and how did they make their mark on history? CONADEP was the Comisión Nacional sobre la Desaparición de Personas. It was a commission that was set up after democracy returned, just a few days after President Alfonsín came to power. It uh, dissolved in late 1984 and during its a year and three months of existence, the CONADEP, which was far formed by pretty well-known intellectuals and people from the political and academic world and the struggle for human rights, they collected a lot of information about uh, what had happened. They visited detention centers, they visited morgues, they interviewed a lot of people, and they wrote a final report which was presented to President Alfonsín, registering the existence of 380 clandestine detention centers and recording the the existence of at least 9,000 disappeared. The title of the report was uh, Nunca Más, uh, which means never again. It was proposed by uh, the only non-Argentinian member of the CONADEP, which was Rabbi Marshall T. Meyer, who was actually born in, in Queens, in New York, who had, uh, from his role as, as a rabbi who had been in Argentina since the late 50s, he had been very active in the struggle for human rights, and he proposed the title of that report as a, a reference to the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising during World War II. Wow. And this report was released not without controversy from people who were seeking to prosecute the junta, from what I understand. Yeah, uh, basically, uh, first of all, the, the prologue of that report was written by Ernesto Sabato, a famous uh, novelist, who was the chairman of the commission, discussed the theory of two demons. There was a revised version, which came out during the Kirchner administration, the year 2010, which actually criticized the previous prologue and talked about uh, state terrorism. And uh, some people also believe that, uh, for example, Conadep did not acknowledge... For example, the persecution against LGBT people, because there was a repression against LGBTQ people and their organizations. Right, of course. Uh, this also has to do, you know, with, uh, for example, when after World War II, they, when they put up a monument to LGBTQ people who had been murdered by the Nazis, some Holocaust survivors and historians, such as Israel Gutman, who was both a historian and a survivor, they were upset, for example, that they were being placed at the same level as Jewish uh, victims of the Holocaust 
there seems oh to be. Oh my god! Yeah, there was a there was a debate. You know, uh, is is a political prisoner the same as a sexual prisoner? Uh, I mean, this was still the seventies and eighties. Uh, well, this was being discussed. It was also like type of the AIDS epidemic, and still a lot of social conservatism. Now, some people use the number thirty thousand four hundred disappeared to acknowledge the approximately four hundred people who were uh, murdered during the dictatorship because of their sexual orientation. And we see in the movie very evocatively just how the Kona Depp uh, report was prefaced with all kinds of equivocation, literally. Within the first 10 minutes of Argentina 1985, we see that the findings of the Kona Depp report are being reported on television, but it's being prefaced by a speech by Trocoli, who was a minister who we mentioned previously, talking about, you know, this idea that there somehow was an equivalence between the actions of the guerrillas and the response of, of the military, that these were two sides of, of the same coin. So Right, so much like other cases of genocide, it's being this, the Conadep report was criticized by some people on the right saying, is this overly focused on the crimes done by the military and thus they turn a blind eye to crimes or excesses committed by the guerrilla? We know that there were civilian casualties. We know that this number was significantly lower. Uh, we can put some weight on the context of political repression and the banning of political expression. Or we can say, okay, these were equally bad forces. I, I don't think they were equally bad, but I don't know. If we're talking about policies of memory, for example, the Bulgarian philosopher and historian Tvetan Todorov, a Bulgarian French, you know, he came here to Argentina and he went to the ESPA Museum. For those who don't know, ESPA was the mechanical uh, school of the Navy, and it was the largest clandestine detention center in all of Argentina. Thousands of people went through there, and he went and he saw the museum that was built commemorating the repression, and he said, uh, this is an abuse of history, and had the had the dirty war finished differently, this would be a museum showing all the crimes of the guerrilla. So he was saying, basically, what happened here was not reconciliation, what happened here was vengeance. I think in Argentina we have it pretty clear, at least those of us who identify with the left of Argentina, that there are simply issues in which it is impossible to reconcile. Yes, of course, I understand. All right, so let's get to the actual prosecution. Um, at first, it was proposed that the junta be tried in front of a military court. But from what I understand, the court did not find them guilty, saying that the excesses that were committed were the actions of subordinates, not part of a larger organized plan. How exactly did this fall into the civilian courts after such a fiasco? So uh, basically, uh, Alfonsin... And some people have criticized the movie for not giving President Alfonsin the role that uh, he deserves. But uh, his original plan was for the armed forces to judge the crimes against humanity that the commanders themselves committed. committed. There was a first trial which started in December uh, 1983, very early on after the return of democracy, but uh, the military was acquitted. Then in late 1984, a civil civil, um, court took the decision of moving away the military court and to handle the, cause, uh, the, the investigation directly based on the idea that, well, the military had not committed its duty in prosecuting the commanders. This was uh, partly the responsibility of a judge called Leon Arslanian, who was a member of the, uh, he was one of the judges that you see in the movie. So as we can see, uh, the Junteros, they were very actively attempting to evade justice, even though they had accepted the transition to democracy somewhat. How were they able to do this? Was this just a matter of them having friends in the right places who would uh, push the dial in their direction? 
I think they, they were pretty confident that they had a, a still a lot of influence. Uh, a lot of the legal defense was based on the fact that a constitutional government had issues decrees that talked about the annihilation of the guerrillas during the last uh, years of democracy. And then again, if there was any chance that their interests would be harmed during the trial, they also tried to negotiate and to threaten those involved and to try to discipline them. Right. Okay. So we've talked about what the movie does talk about, but we don't talk about what's absent in the movie. And there are some very glaring absences, even based on my own very cursory compared to your knowledge of of Argentina. I also got the sense that the movie mostly tries not to talk about politics directly. That's seen as a bit too much for some sectors of Argentinian society, even today. But we do catch glimpses of it. For example, there's an evocative scene at the climax of the movie where Stracera, he's called in for a meeting with a representative of Alfonsin, who basically tells him to drop the case against particular members of the junta. Yes, of the Air Force. Yes, yes, of the Air Force. And that's just really one glimpse. But what are some other absences that you felt should be addressed. Yeah, I felt the movie can be a little apolitical. It would seem to portray a judicial process that isn't, that is kind of separated from politics. In fact, when Estracera meets Alfonsin, that's barely talked about. It lasts for two minutes. It's not really an important part of the movie. Alfonsin is represented as a kind of middleman. Peronism, for example, the big political question in Argentina about what a Peronism is and what its impact on human rights were is barely addressed. And when it's addressed, it's kind of addressed in the form of a joke. Uh, you know, it's this father who argues with his son about what Peronism means and why he's a Peronist when they're choosing the team. You know, he says like, uh, we'll, we can talk about this at home. So the movie can be seen at times as anti-politics. I believe they try their best at uh, approaching a topic that is very hot today while trying not to get their hands dirty and trying to avoid it looking like support to a current uh, political party or others. This is a question that is very much uh, present in Argentinian society today. So it's very hard to talk about the past without uh, talking about the present. And of course, you can see this apolitical framing very well with the figure of uh, of the mother of, 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 of Luis Moreno Amocampo, who was the deputy prosecutor of the trial, who's this very um, upper crust right wing lady who is basically very sympathetic to the Junteros because she goes to church with some of them. Here we see that her disgust isn't by the end of the movie, she is won over to the idea that these people actively committed atrocities, but it's not presented at all from a political lens. This was just framed as it's it's very painful to hear the testimony of some of the people who went through this torture. So the problem is that that they were tortured, not that they were kidnapped. Right. And also another problem is it, it tries to show these people as heroes, uh, which is what I think is the most fundamental issue in which the movie turns into a Hollywood movie, that it becomes the long struggle of a prosecutor who suddenly sees the light. Well, Stracera, we don't, we don't know when he saw the light. Mm-hmm. And the truth is, if we look at history, there were political changes and there was a government that promised to put the military on trial and the people who were 
for the most part, willing to make, make these people go to trial. That was the only reason Straceda changed his mind. That was the only reason Moreno Campo joins him. And without that, and I think the movie was trying to not look like an homage to any politician, but the truth is that these, these prosecutors without politics were nothing. Yes, absolutely. It's it's impossible to talk about this without reference to politics, as you said. Yeah, and finally, uh, the, the movie makes it seem like Stracera is really the pivotal figure to this as someone who is sort of thrown in the hot chair because nobody else would step up. There's even a, a line in the movie where he's talking to a friend and he's like, oh, people like me don't make history. Very self-effacing, very annoying to put in a movie about a guy, frankly. Hmm. Um, yeah. But um, I guess I would ask, to what extent was Stracera as a person actually pivotal to the trial? Again, I, I, I think, so I wasn't alive then, but I feel like without a, the political decision to back up Stracera, he not only would have been able to accomplish nothing, he probably would have been unwilling to pursue anything, which is the end what what, what makes some of these points in the movie turn a little too too heroic in the figure of Stracera, who, of course, is a figure that it's easy to all uh, idealize in the movie because he's dead. All right. And, and with that being said, we're going to actually turn to the movie itself in a moment. But before we do, I would just like to ask you, uh, to this day, uh, the question of what exactly to call what happened uh, remains very hot. You personally use the word genocide, which is the normal nomenclature for the left in Argentina. Argentina. Why do you choose that word specifically? I chose that word specifically uh, because of several reasons. Well, I, I, dirty war is a concept that barely does it justice because it portrays two sides as equals and both sides as equally dirty. And dirty war is essentially an apologetic term to justify why uh, one side specifically abducted babies and uh, murdered people the way it did. State terrorism is a reference to what the government did, but it refers to specifically certain techniques of violence and doesn't really do justice to the fact that there was a systematic plan to transform the country. Crimes Against Humanity is a figure that has some legal uh, impact precisely because of the fact that these crimes were declared a crime against humanity. That's the reason why we can still put people on trial today because according to Argentinian law, and I think this the same way in many countries, a crime that is a crime against humanity does not have a specific statute of limitations. That means, uh, you know, you, you can put a homicide case on trial, but uh, after 12 or 15 years, you can't do that anymore. But crimes against humanity don't expire. And in terms of genocide, following uh, Daniel Firestein, who is a professor at the University of Buenos Aires, he likes to talk about uh, genocide as a, a social process, a very ancient social process, by the way, in which uh, society is reconfigured through basically the murder of a society, a large part of a society or part of society. Now, uh, the concept of genocide was coined actually after World War II, but it refers to a very ancient crime. If we look at the convention, the discussions behind the convention, and the original definition that was proposed by Lemkin, the person who really authored the concept of uh, genocide, it includes crimes committed to political groups. Now, because of international pressure, mostly from the superpowers, political groups were accepted from the definition of genocide, which ended up including political, religious, and ethnic groups. Now, we know that many times the formation itself of an ethnic group actually comes from a political or a social representation. So we can't really make a distinction, a clear-cut distinction between political groups and ethnic groups 
without basically accepting racial classifications as if they were true, when in fact they are social constructions. Now, uh, secondly, we do know that there was a racist component to the crimes of the dictatorship. For example, we talked about anti-Semitic-fueled crimes and certain crimes committed against sexual minorities. It's important to understand that violence here was not an end in itself. Violence here was implemented as a form of a social engineering. A large percentage, I believe 66% of people who were murdered during the dictatorship were in fact a union leaders. And we can think that violence was implemented here in Argentina as a way of re-engineering society and transforming the way Argentinians relate to each other in a way that still exists to this day. From that perspective, uh, Argentinian society today is the product of genocide. And only by acknowledging what happened here as a genocide can we really begin to deconstruct the effects that it has on society today. That is why I prefer the concept of genocide. It allows us to think of ourselves as the result of a terrible form of social reengineering. And I think that is the perfect time to segue into uh, our discussion of the first of the two films that we saw for this episode, and that one being Argentina 1985, which uh, just a couple of weeks ago lost the Ford Picture Oscar, which I think is kind of a shame. Because it's quite good. Yeah, against the Germans. Yeah, they, they did. They were all quiet on the Western Front. Yeah, yeah that was good too. But uh, but I thought this was I thought this was um, all quiet on the Western Front was interesting. But it's you know what you're getting into with that one. Like nothing really that groundbreaking. Uh, I liked it, but I don't really get the praise. This I thought was more interesting, and I think I also liked this one uh, more than Sam did. It's directed by Santiago Mitre, and I know that he's done a lot of other interesting Argentinian films before. Uh, I know one of them that Sam was interested in. I don't think either of us has seen though. Was El Estudiante about student politics in Argentina? Yeah, that one was partly filmed in my alma mater, the School of Social Sciences oh, at the University cool. of Buenos Aires. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's cool. So, so what? what, what who, tell us about uh, Santiago Mitre. Like, what's his deal? What, what, what's he known for? So. Santiago Mitre uh, was actually started as an independent film producer. Mm -hmm. His uh, films became quite successful, among them El Estudiante. Uh, he also started as a scriptwriter. So, for example, he wrote some films that were uh, directed by a very famous director named Pablo Trapero, who does pretty socially critical films. One of them, Leonera, I actually had to watch for a university assignment, which was about a women's prison and motherhood in a women's prison. Carancho is about sort of sleazy lawyers and Elefante Blanco. A lot of it has a lot to do with social decadence, you know, marginalized groups. El Estudiante has a lot to do with student politics. It was, it received, I would say, mixed reviews. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't enjoy it very much. And he also filmed La Cordillera. You could see how, uh, from uh, starting from his uh, early films, he starts to get more and more budget until he gets to do Argentina in 1985, which is his last film uh, that came out uh, last year, 2022. He's known to make films without the support of the Argentinian Film Institute, which is very rare in Argentina that you don't get state support for it. Oh, yeah, because you mentioned earlier, yeah. Yeah, this film in particular does have it, but uh, a lot of his other films haven't. You know, so, so you mentioned uh, like that his early your films deal with like you know corrupt lawyers and you know the government and all that so it seems like this guy social issues this guy clearly has you know a certain like thematic style and this is totally clear here because this is all about the work of Julio Stracera the leader of the prosecution of the Argentinian junta and Luis Ocampo who's his younger more cautious 
partner. And so basically they, the whole point of the movie, it's like a, the, the whole second half really is that it's like it becomes a courtroom drama where they try to try all of these guys, including Masera, the former dictator, who have no interest in respecting the court's authority. It kind of reminds me of the English Civil War, where when uh, when King Charles I was brought before Parliament, he said, like, what are you guys doing? I am the king. I am the government. You have no right to try me. And this is exactly what the junta members tried to do here. They claimed that the court had no authority and therefore they didn't have to testify. So they had to, these guys. Right. They, they started questioning the legitimacy of a civil court in uh, what they thought would be a military affair. But the truth is that military courts had already had their shot and had decided to turn their back on justice. Yeah. Yeah, right. And in fact, I have here a quote that I pulled from the movie. That's a direct quote from the report of the Supreme Council of the Armed Forces to the Court of Appeals to get them to not take up the case in the civilian courts. And they wrote, quote, this council informs that according to its investigation, the decrees, directives, orders, and military procedures which were issued to combat the state's aversion were in content and form unobjectionable. The excesses were committed by subordinates. The court should investigate offenses of the alleged victims as well. So in other words, it's saying that like, it's not a big deal. It didn't really happen. If it did happen, it's not these guys' fault. This was just part of doing uh, business to, you know, restore democracy, to fight this dirty war. A term that the dictatorship itself uh, adopted, which is why in Argentina itself, it has negative connotations. The idea of a dirty war means that, first of all, you have sort of horizontality between two sides, right? There's somebody's going to come out a winner. And the idea of dirty war means basically that dirty tactics are legitimized precisely because of its nature as a dirty war. Yes. Now, uh, that also has to do with something after democracy returned, we started a little battle here in Argentina. And I would say in many other Latin American countries that suffered through dictatorships supported by the US in the context of the Cold War, which the point was the large majority of South America, uh, which is how to frame, how to establish a narrative over what happened. Now, in Argentina, one of the popular responses was you know, this idea of the theory of two demons. So the idea of the war, which I know sounds very interesting for American viewers, really <laughs> disregards the fact that, first of all, power superiority was all, all the power was to the state and that takes away the responsibility what we had here was state terrorism supported by foreign actors and that is not a dirty war this was a massacre yes exactly so the first like 30 minutes first 45 minutes of the movie i'd say are basically setting up the framework like we see amacera he's a lawyer we don't really know what his deal is except we know that he thinks that the dictatorship is evil but he's very reluctant to actually prosecute them because he believes that he is unable to bring justice to the victims because these structures are so entrenched. And there are still many sympathizers, and especially the upper strata of Argentinian society, who fundamentally thought that the dictatorship, even if some excesses were committed by subordinates, was the correct move. Yes, uh, I was surprised at the beginning of the movie when, uh, first of all, I didn't expect it to be as focused as it was on, on Stracera. An interesting figure, but also controversial in the sense that this was a man who had climbed his way through the judicial power throughout the dictatorship. And you can see it in the movie that the mothers actually say, like, he did nothing. And there's also a lot of focus, even though it's a secondary role, on the figure of Luis Moreno Campo, who is still alive. I want to spend the last few years, if I'm not mistaken, working in the International Criminal Court in The Hague. But when he became a, one of the members of this trial, he was very much in the beginning of his career as a lawyer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, he he had never prosecuted a case before. He says he was a professor up until that point. And he, he's basically this guy from a, a really far right upper crust family who like 
went to a military school. His mother goes to church with Videla, the former dictator. But this guy, he believes in justice. He believes in the rule of law. And so he's sort of rebelling against his family by trying to take his job seriously. In fact, he frames what he's doing in exactly those terms. He says Ayn at some point that he's the right person for the job precisely because he doesn't have uh, the reputation of like these human rights lawyers, uh, many of whom had a more openly left wing credentials and so consequently could be dismissed as yeah. communists. While he says that, you know, he's from this upstanding family, there's no question that he has uh, good intentions and all of that. Yeah, and the fact that the fear of uh, of having the prosecutors be accused of communists is why there's that cute scene where they recruit all these like super young lawyers fresh out of school who've never done any case before to be involved in this in this case. Because, you know, you think that such an important trial would need like the, the most experienced lawyers around, but anybody who had any kind of experience before the government, before the, the junta or during, because they're now going against the junta, they could be implicated as communists. So you need somebody young enough, basically who's too young to have any previous involvement in any kind of activities. Well, that or they were collaborators. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and there's a this is sort of funny. I, I was surprised by how the amount of humor that they put in the movie. Yeah, yeah. There's kind yeah, of a funny, funny scene funny in the movie times. where he says like, what, what do you say if we include this one on the team? Or what do you say if we include this one on the team? And everybody is dismissed as facho. Now, mm-hmm. facho is Argentinian slang for somebody on the right. Obviously, it comes from fascist. Mm-hmm. It doesn't today just mean fascist. What they're trying to show is that a very large section of Argentinian society had found a way of justifying the coup, justifying the human rights abuses. The trial was not just a trial, much like many of the famous trials in human history, such as the Eichmann trial. It was also an educational opportunity. Mm-hmm. They were trying to publicize, broadcast what the dictatorship had happened as a way of showing people, you know, these weren't just the upright citizens who might have committed an abuse or two. This was a systematic plan to violate human rights and annihilate a certain sector of Argentinian society. So uh, I think uh, it, it's humor, but also I can't emphasize enough the kind of impact that it had in Argentinian society. Today, 24th of March, the anniversary of the coup, the movies probably being filmed were about to be, uh, sorry, it's about to be screened next to Congress for free for people to see it as they look at Congress. Even though everybody's seen it by now, it's important enough that it's being uh, projected uh, on the walls of National Congress. Many schools, including where I work, uh, we took our students to watch it in uh, at cinemas. Uh, it led to a lot of discussion. Right now, there are some, uh, uh, there's a sort of a resurgence of the extreme right in Argentina that includes some people who justify, relativize, or uh, even deny the crimes of the junta. And I think... It didn't it, happen, but it was good. Yes. Yeah. Just looking at Twitter today, you had two hashtags that were trending topic. One was que nunca más, never again. And the other one was no fueron 30,000, which is they were not 30,000 because there are people who uh, like to question mm. the number 30,000 as a big entry point or the beginning of questioning just a larger narrative about what happened in the 70s and 80s here. And they claim that uh, history has been sequestered. Right. But as we mentioned previously, uh, this number comes from sources of the government itself. This wasn't something that the activists were absolutely, coming up with. Absolutely. And uh, also, like it, it, much like the, num- the number 6 million words to the Holocaust, it might not be historically accurate, but what is the difference? What if it was 15,000 against 30,000? Was, this was still an act of genocide. There was still a criminal act and the consequences of which we can still see today. So I'm not interested in questioning it with people with, uh, uh, other agendas. Right, absolutely. Now, 
me personally, I wasn't a huge fan of this movie. But nevertheless, this movie had a huge impact in Argentina. You told me that there were people crying in the theaters when they went to see it. Absolutely. Particularly during a very strong testimony, which is uh, taken from reality, of a woman who had to give birth in a car. And yes. was later forced to wash up after her. And then also in the final speech given by Stracera in the trial right before the, the judges are about to adjourn and uh, deliberate on their sentencing. Right. And the woman in question was named Amadriana Calvo de la Borde. She unfortunately passed like a decade ago of cancer, I believe it was. But yeah, she died young, much too young, unfortunately. Uh, what do you think, Kevin? Do you think that uh, the events depicted in the movie are presented more or less accurately? Yeah. And just to, just to read right here, for people, food, most of our listeners are not going to have seen this movie. The events we're talking about are the fact that there was a lot of intimidation of the prosecution. Uh, there was at one point, there's a car bombing. They get like a red paint thrown all over their office to warn them. There's one scene where some of the young lawyers are doing some kind of radio interview and people associated with the junta that's no longer in power, but these people, regardless, they try to shut down the radio interview as it's happening. All this really hardcore intimidation by figures aligned with the former government trying to stop their crimes from being publicized. Personally, I think it's it's an accurate depiction of the judicial process and the obstacles that their protagonists face. Now, does it show a full picture of what the dictatorship meant? Does it go into the more tricky issue of the civilian support for the dictatorship or the economic plan that the dictatorship implemented and the uh, sort of a very meek government in the 80s did nothing to reverse? No. So I don't think it's it, it's good if you look at it as a documentary. It is good if you think of a sort of catch-all movie that gets people interested in the topic, something that can get an Oscar nomination, that is filmed kind of like a Hollywood movie, but will not really get to the depth. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, it's easy to, to talk about the dictatorship and just talk about probably the most outstanding issue of it all, which is the murders, the rapes, the torture. But this also hides the fact that this was also an economic plan. Oh, definitely. It's, yeah, it's very slick. 20,000 factories were shut down. Accumulated inflation over the seven years of the dictatorship was 517,000%. While they were doing it, they threw uh, the World Cup, uh, the Soccer World Cup in 1978, that cost $500 million to organize. The entire world was looking at Argentina, by the way. We won, and this was just part of the propaganda machine run by, by the dictatorship. Yeah. Over 200 songs were banned. A lot of artists, intellectuals had to go into exile. The list of banned books was over 600, including uh, children's books. Over 300 movies were banned. And uh, something that a lot of people don't know is poverty increased between the last days of Perón's government until the return of democracy. It, uh, poverty increased by 35%. Yes, yes. This was economic warfare against the poorest parts of the Argentinian population. It was a plan of extraction to basically benefit these people personally, but to impoverish the rest of the country massively. Yes, and also to implement uh, American plans to transform the entire world economy. Uh, financial speculation was rampant and the industrialization of these poor countries was very much against American interests. Right, of course. Something that the movie does to try to explain why, uh, why the trial ended the way it did, spoiler alert, most of the people involved were not actually sentenced in this trial and many of the ones who were sentenced had their sentences revoked by the following president, uh, Menem. Uh, but anyway, the movie, it creates this impression that there was a large fear within Argentinian society that there was going to be a military uprising if this trial was actually fully implemented, if these people were 
brought to justice. And the result that it wasn't as thorough as it should have been is because of the sphere. Did the sphere actually exist? And was it a credible uh, threat, do you think? It absolutely existed. Uh, I think it was credible to a point. There was a large uh, uprising, for example, in 1987, uh, led by a lieutenant colonel in the army named... Really? Uh, yeah, it was It was called the uh, Levantamiento Carapintada, or Las Sublevaciones. So, yes, so basically, so this was a violent attempt to reassert the uh, the junta, the coup. Yeah, they, well, they weren't clearly saying that they wanted the return of the dictatorship, but they were demanding an amnesty against anyone who was being prosecuted for crimes from the military from 76 to 83. Wow. And basically, the all armed forces showed that they weren't willing to accept orders from the constitutional government led by Alfonsín, and the government was very close to just collapsing. In fact, Alfonsín was also very weakened by the tragic result of his economic policies and he had to resign a few months before his uh, mandate was uh, about to end uh -huh. because of hyperinflation. Right, okay. And in the movie, this fear is seen through the gloss of an organization called the Tricolor Command, which mm -hmm. uh, which is the moniker that people use when they call in a bomb threat or something. You mean the, the, fear, the fear of the coup? The fear of the coup? The fear of military reprisal, yes. And, and there are these constant references to the Tricolor Command within the movie. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, the, the Tricolor Command actually didn't exist. <laughs> uh, this was just uh, a, a phantom organization that was being used to discipline. What the movie shows is that Stracera and other people involved in the trial, they were suffering through constant threats that they would get murdered. In fact, there's a point where somebody picks up the phone and says, like, Stracera will be executed in the next 48 hours. And also, Stracera's family received threats. Right, and, and, that, and, and, right. and that's why, you know, uh, the kind of big question it seems like that the film doesn't state explicitly but implies is due to this intimidation, or really rather, was this campaign of intimidation successful? Do you think there's like a cause and effect line you can draw between the Tricolor Commission harassing these lawyers to eventually very few of these Junta members actually being convicted of anything? Or those who were eventually convicted eventually getting their convictions overturned by uh, Timur? Or not Tamir, uh, what was his name? Uh, Menem. Menem, thank you, thank you, yeah. Tamir is actually uh, Lebanese. Mene Diana. Menem is Syrian. Yeah. <laughs> but Tamir is uh, Brazilian. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I'm getting a South American uh, Lebanese too confused. <laughs> All right, but even right, so that's the question, right? Like, do you, do you think that, uh, did this intimidation campaign work? Is that why the, a lot of these guys got off easy? Or is it not connected? What do you think? I think to a great extent, some people who uh, lived through that period were concerned about going back to the collapse of a certain societal order. So they were willing to compromise and accept partial justice or even the idea of the military not returning. So I think violence had a deep impact in the way uh, people express their aspirations towards justice and democracy. It's hard for me to judge people who uh, were too fearful that uh, going too far would reopen uh, wounds and would reopen just the disaster was the 70s. I, I see it differently because I didn't live through it. But I see when I talk to my parents' generation, for example, who are forced to hide books or who are forced to go outside with fear, who were uh, taught to be mindful of who they relate to or whose phone book their name might show up in. There is palpable fear about the power of the military and uh, perhaps what one would consider a sort of uh, overwhelming desire for social order and cohesion. So I think it was successful. Now, uh, obviously, what you're seeing in the movie is that not everybody felt that, you know, it was time to move on. Argentina is quite a rare example 
of this kind of justice. Usually uh, in other Latin American countries or even after the Spanish Civil War, people just decided, okay, this was a mess. Now let's look towards the future and let's not, let's not dig too deeply. What happened in Argentina, particularly after the amnesty laws were declared unconstitutional in 2006, was quite an exemplary case of how to perform transitional justice, how to bring these horrible human rights abusers to justice, and that it is possible to do it without reopening a scenario of civil war. But not everybody knew that. It took over 20 years to know that. Right. Yeah, so in addition to the Tricolor Command, which actually didn't exist, as Kevin says, there's another organization that plays a very important role in the movie, namely the Mothers of the Plaza. Yes, yeah, yeah, which you mentioned earlier. Yeah, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? I know they have like the, they, they all wear scarves, headscarves with the names of their missing relatives or presumably murdered relatives embroidered on them. Yes, and now if you go to Plaza de Mayo, which is the central square of Buenos Aires, right in front of the presidential house, right in front of the cathedral of Buenos Aires, you will find that uh, sort of handkerchief symbol painted uh, around the square because that is where they met. So the Mas de Plaza de Mayo are uh, the mothers of people who were abducted during the dictatorship. This was a time when uh, any kind of political gathering, rally, protest was officially banned by the government. Yet these mothers, and it's interesting how they were women, the, the, the founding group were, were all women. Uh, I think men had been disciplined more. They started gathering, it was in April 1977, very early on in the dictatorship, and they started circling around the central square of Buenos Aires called Plaza de Mayo to demand to know what had happened to their children. Uh, and they were demanding a, a meeting with the first de facto president uh, after the coup, who was uh, Jorge you can see in the movie, the actor actually looks a lot like him. The first group were 14 mothers. All of their children had been abducted. They had tried to get a meeting with somebody from the Catholic Church and uh, they had been refused to. Let's keep in mind that the Catholic Church, even though they had priests that were abducted, um, was for the large part complicit. And uh, these mothers who became very visible during the dictatorship, they received uh, help from uh, international organizations. Mm -hmm. They also faced persecution. There was a man named uh, Alfredo Astiz. He actually infiltrated the group uh, and he's responsible for uh, the disappearance of at least 12 people who are wow. linked to the organization. Now, there's a second group that the movie doesn't show, but it's also very uh, visible in Argentinian society called the Grandmothers of Plaza de Mayo. These are the grandmothers of... A splinter group, for lack of a better so there were two splinter groups. One was the Madres Plaza Macho Línea Fundadora, founding line, who felt that uh, the mothers had uh, become overly political and had become involved in causes that were uh, beyond the uh, trying to learn what happened to the children. And then there was another group who said, basically, and just to summarize something that is very complicated and probably hard to come to, is our children are dead. Uh, there's not a lot that we can do about it, but we want to know what happened to our grandchildren. A lot of uh, young women were abducted during their pregnancy. Uh, we know because of testimony that they were allowed to give birth to their children in these detention centers. So they wanted to know, you know what happened to them. We know now that a lot of them were given to military families, families linked to the regime. They were sold. And the stealing of babies is something that the Argentina dictatorship took from, from the Spanish Civil War. They were also doing it as a way of like taking away babies from the Republican side to be, uh, you know, to be raised by upstanding families who will raise them as good citizens. 
It is believed that 490 babies were abducted. Uh, now, through DNA testing, the grandmothers have a genetic bank. 130 people, 132 if I'm not mistaken, two of them last year, they recovered their identity using uh, modern genetic testing. Uh, did the fact that uh, these were all women that were publicly facing members, was this a deliberate choice stemming from the fact that the dictatorship would be more reluctant to be violent against uh, mothers or did it just work out that way? I do not think it was a plan. I just feel like this was a group of very strong willed women whose uh, husbands had just been disciplined a little stronger by the propaganda machine of the dictatorship and they had been disciplined into silence. It, it might it have been, I, I'm not aware of it having been something deliberate to gain, I don't know, international uh, support. I, I just think that the initiative was actually held by the women. Right. Okay. Yeah, that that's very good to know. Yes. And, and this is an organization that still exists today. I have to clarify a lot of these are a, a lot of these women died without ever really knowing what happened to the children. But in the march today, you could still see some of them uh, in their 90s. And they're very respected. And uh, when they go into the march, uh, other organizations uh, yell uh, Madres de la Plaza, El Pueblo Las Abraza, which is Mothers of the Square, the people uh, embrace you. As Kevin mentioned previously, uh, most of the people in involved were actually pardoned by the next president, Menem. Yeah, Menem, not Tamir. What was the deal there? Was he like a military uh, supporter? Did he have connections or or what? Well, no, Menem had actually been uh, tortured by the dictatorship and he was a Peronist. But once he got to power, he was actually very right wing in many of his policies, many of his economic policies, and also his human rights record was atrocious. And he adopted this whole pacifying speech. Uh, of like, uh, let's all try to reconcile. Yeah, so Menem, he he rescinds uh, the verdicts, he pardons these people, and then they're put back into prison a decade later, pretty much? Two decades. Yes, yeah. uh, in the 2000s, so about 15 years later, all of the amnesty laws were declared unconstitutional, and then all of the trials reopened. And so some of these people actually did end up dying in jail because of that, but many more died free men. Yes, and there are still trials uh, active today. Yeah, because it's because it's, 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 this dictatorship, like this was it was forty years ago. It's not that compared to something like you know the Holocaust. It's not as far away in living memory. People who who committed these atrocities and still around, are now still around. Some of them are probably in their like you know in their sixties, not in their nineties. Yes. One thing we talked about earlier that I kind of want to ask, that I want to ask about again, uh, Kevin, is uh, the fact that uh, earlier we talked about how there was kind of almost a uh, eugenics kind of angle to the assassinations, especially when it came to the capture of children. And I believe there was also sterilization, right, of left-wing people. Yes. There was the idea that the, these purges would remove um, these unwanted elements from Argentine society. And as far as I understand, it wasn't really racial in the way that any kind of Nazi eugenics projects were, but it still has very eugenic uh, attitudes. And I think that a big part of that was the seizure of children and the placement of them in supposedly good homes. You know, they talked about the, the pregnant women in, in this one. And this is also a major focus of the other film that we saw, which was the official story, a film actually made in Argentina in 1985. So could you talk about the legacy of uh, these basically stolen generations of children, the children of dissidents who were 
kidnapped and given to other families. What exactly was the, how, how widespread was that? And what was the intention? And how is this uh, remembered in Argentina today? Well, uh, La Historia Visero was a hugely influential movie. Yeah. Uh, there were a couple of movies that were done in the 80s mm-hmm. that tried to build a narrative over what had happened during the dictatorship, many of which had international recognition. La Historia Oficial, Garage Olimpo, uh, were probably among the most influential of all of them. And uh, well, this one, focuses mostly on the abduction of babies which Mm -hmm. was I mean a horrible horrible crime it was pretty widespread and uh, to this day there are still campaigns to try to bring the number of people who are identified which is as I said before has been has reached 132 to try to uh, make it reach a a higher sum it is obviously based on true facts even though it doesn't really depict any specific story Mm -hmm. it tries to you know be inspired by actual stories and and to see, you know, what would be the case uh, of a mother who slowly picks up on the realization that her um, adopted daughter is actually the appropriate daughter of somebody who disappeared. This was always, uh, this is always a messy issue. A lot of people who I've heard really want to know their true identity and the conditions in which they were born. Right. They, for example, don't want their adoptive parents to be prosecuted because that's what happens these days. I mean, these people committed a crime, even if it's a crime of love, sometimes only one of the partners in the family uh, knows the origin of the baby. Sometimes we're talking about poor, uh, undereducated people who don't really know the origin of the baby and don't yeah. don't ask around too much. But because they are part of an irregular adoption, an illegal adoption, then they have to be prosecuted. And many of them uh, have served pretty lengthy prison yeah. sentences. And so basically, to take to take a step back here and look at this movie, the official story, the English title, uh, the, the, you said it's, it's about uh, the woman is a teacher, the main character. And so even though she's teaching the history of Argentina and the, at the tail end of the dictatorship, what she's telling these students is basically propaganda. And because it's the tail end of the dictatorship, most of these students are aware of that. And a couple students in particular try to spread, uh, you know, their own counter propaganda on school grounds, which gets them in trouble. Across the film, she slowly learns that her husband was much more involved in the junta government than she had thought. And then the big shocking revelation is, like you said, that her daughter was in fact a member of this stolen generation. Uh, across the film, she starts investigating her daughter's origins. She meets with an old friend who she learns was actually, had actually been tortured. That's why she's been living in Spain all these years. And eventually it has this... Uh, tragic, disastrous consequence for this family, this world that this woman has built for herself, which is quite a comfortable world, ultimately comes crashing down. And the way that uh, she learns the truth is a, is a very, very evocative scene. Amelicia, mm-hmm. she goes to a party and she runs into this old friend she had that she hadn't seen in years. Yeah, the one from Spain. Yeah, and she starts telling her what happened to her. And at first she starts telling the story laughing and acting like it's silly, like, oh, they broke into my apartment and they tore down my poster. And eventually it gets just more and more more graphic until the woman's laughter transitions into crying. Sobs. Yes. Yeah, it's just... Yeah, it's a pretty hard scene to watch. Whereas um, Argentina 1985 was much more of a top-down story, which has its benefits. The official story is much, much more intimate, which gives us another perspective on the dictatorship, a much stronger one, I feel, largely because people who are making this film had a different set of politics. Uh, but yeah, to get to the point of a, a very strong theme in this movie that's not really touched in the previous one is this dilemma of the middle class, for lack of a better words. Uh, the people who were, you know, professionals who were on the surface committed to ethics and human rights, but to, yeah. on the other hand, refuse to believe that the dictatorship was as evil as it actually was um, until the trial happened and this testimony was 
covered relentlessly. Only at that point did, did many people realize the true scale of what had happened and that these weren't isolated incidents. Absolutely. And obviously, this kind of comfort that people naturally look after is based uh, on, a, on a large extent in some kind of denial of reality. You don't want to know what's happening in the underground. You don't want to know what's happening in the detention center or you don't want to know what happens when your neighbor, after your neighbor gets in the weird car in the middle of the night, because then how can you live and how can you stay up at night? Uh, the movie also somehow deals with the issue of those that were exiled and in a very telling, yeah, and a very telling uh, scene towards the end, they use a lullaby by a famous Argentinian author named Maria Elena Walsh, En el país de no me acuerdo. Yes. Oh, what was it? The, the country I don't recommend. In the country, yeah. Maria Elena Walsh, uh, whose music we all grew up, grew up on, was a very interesting feminist lesbian author oh, who was cool. very influential in transforming children's literature. And during the dictatorship, she just decided to stop writing because she she felt she had nothing to write in a country where censorship was legal. And I got to think from the name, that must be another uh, Irish Argentine, right? Yes, exactly. Much like Rodolfo Walsh, who was also, yeah, yeah. also and, became and, a sort of a resistance icon, a journalist and a writer. Yeah, yeah. And you, one last, that, that, that last scene you mentioned uh, is really evocative because what happens is at the very end of this film, Alicia, the protagonist, the teacher, her family has been totally destroyed because her husband has not only revealed himself as a collaborator of the government who essentially you know, kidnapped the child for them. He also uh, has revealed himself to be terribly abusive. He, he beats her, essentially. That causes Alicia and her daughter to, to escape. And then the very last scene is that he, the, the husband, who's now totally been abandoned by his family, you know, with good reason, he tries to call the daughter, but uh, they don't want to talk to him. And he just hears his daughter singing this kind of creepy lullaby, the one about the country I don't remember, across the phone, which, of course, has, you know, very symbolic meaning yes, right there. Yes, absolutely. It's a... It's a pretty harsh scene to watch. Uh, and it's a difficult movie to watch, but I think it's a necessary movie to watch. It shows, I think, in a more effective manner, the kind of human yeah. impact that the crimes of the dictatorship had on a large part of society. And I also think both movies have to do a lot with people trying to deny the truth and not get to the uncomfortable and painful truth that might have long-standing consequences. But I think Argentina 1985 deals with a more human drama that we can all relate yeah. to. There was one interesting scene... Uh one of them, it's, it didn't really advance the plot at all, but it just kind of really develops the character of this collaborationist husband where uh, we see Robert, his, Roberto, yes. yeah, Robert, yeah. We see his family. He goes home and we see his brother and his dad. And they're kind of like the Argentinian junta version of like, you know, resistance liberals because they don't actually do anything to resist the government, but they're critical of it, uh, which they see is like, as like, oh, they see that as like the most, as the most honest thing to do. Uh, whereas they see their son and brother, Robert, as the sellout because he actually is involved in this government. And it's I think it kind of shows that like uh, it's the two kind of sides of the Argentinian middle class at this time. Uh, there are the people who totally go along with the government, you know, don't ask questions. They'll be involved if they can. And then there are the ones who still go along with it, but like, you know, complain under their breath and they think that absolves them. Oh, Liam, you left out one important detail. The father is a veteran of the Spanish Civil War from the Republican side. Oh, you're right. Yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. So, so I kind of got a different sense from that scene just because the father is clearly a, a veteran and, and, and Robert is berating him as someone who's living in the past as like holding on to these dead dreams while he's supposed to feel bad because he's a productive person who's actually actually capable of contributing to society while his father gets to think about uh, all the bad stuff that he had personally witnessed as someone who fought in this equally brutal war, which uh, employed many of the same tactics as the Argentinian junta. Right. Okay. Um, 
So the story advances because Alicia, she comes into contact with the mothers of the plaza and she's put into contact with this woman who believes that Gabby is her granddaughter because she has a photo of her own daughter as a little child who looks exactly identical. Yeah to this to her daughter exactly and that's really the point i'd say when alicia makes a point of no return when she's finally truly committed to righting the wrongs that she was involved in even if unknowingly yes alicia was horrified at just the idea of having been complicit in a crime like that yeah meanwhile we mostly focus on alicia but we do get glimpses into rob robert's life and it's frankly kind of disorienting i don't quite understand what he does what kind of company he works at but he has american contacts the company works with americans on a regular basis. And as the movie progresses, there are more and more comments about people uh, from the company disappearing, presumably for their crimes during the dictatorship. Did I understand what was happening there correctly? Yes, it is assumed that Roberto has somehow become rich uh, or he's increased his social status by dealing with the dictatorship and that he's uh, stressed and they, they start disappearing. Right. And which leads to Roberto becoming violent uh, with Alicia, with his wife. I believe that that's kind of the part of the movie that kind of turns me off, that they were trying to uh, add crimes to dictatorship as sort of a context. But the movie really is about the abduction of the girl. And the fact that Roberto also deals with people who are disappeared at work, I believe that, I, I don't know, it just felt a little forced to me. Yeah, but nevertheless, it's a, it's a very strong movie. If you have to watch one movie about the Junta, I would have to say that it's probably this one. And of course, there are many, many more films that people can watch about all aspects of the dictatorship. Oh, yeah, that, 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 that's what you said earlier, uh, Kevin, how like, you know, our achievements can't stop making films about the Junta. Yeah, I mean, it, it would seem like our only chances of La Historia Oficial, the official story, is the first ever Argentinian movie you know, uh, that won an Oscar. And it would feel like, except for, I think, one exception, that's the only uh, reason we can, we actually get a good shot of being yeah. the Oscar winners. Well, could you maybe recommend some more movies about the junta for uh, for listeners who want to get a better sense of Argentinian cinema as well as the dictatorship? I know there's one uh, one movie about a particularly notorious incident called The Night of the Pencils, yes. which is when a bunch of a dozen teenagers were disappeared one night because they were involved in a group that was calling for uh, reduced fares for students riding the subway or something like that. And only one of these people returned alive. Yes, absolutely. That had long-standing consequences on the educational system. There is another movie that especially deals with what happened in the detention centers and in the flights of death, which is when people who were abducted were thrown into the river and into the sea uh, from airplanes and helicopters. That movie is from 1999 and it's called Garage Olimpo. It's a pretty difficult movie to watch. Um, and another movie which I think is good uh, is Infancia Clandestina, which is about it's from 2011 and it deals with a childhood during mm -hmm. that time you know it's kind of like uh, life is beautiful as in you know what kind of uh, idea could a child get of what was happening in the country mm -hmm. at the time uh, yeah I, th there's a lot more movies uh, but I think those are probably the ones that I would recommend there's a, a good documentary about one specific story that I think I would recommend because his nephew uh, this is an abducted person whose nephew I'm friends with it's the story of Juan Herman who was the only person who was abducted in Bariloche, which is a ski resort. The movie is called Juan como si nada hubiera sucedido. Juan a 
as if nothing had happened. Uh, and it's a documentary that was done between 1984 and 1987, specifically about the abduction of Juan Marcos Herman, who uh, the movie came out in 2005. And it was a very known case of anti-Semitism where Juan Herman, after being abducted, he gets stripped naked in the detention center. They see that he is circumcised and they torture him to oh death. My, oh, oh, my God. And I know this is a, this is a point that's been belabored uh, quite a lot, but I, just because you mentioned Bariloche, I should probably mention here that there's really only one thing that Americans might know Bariloche for. The Nazis. Yes. Yeah. The fact that this was, yeah. Of course. Uh, where a, a lot of Nazis uh, lived after the war. And, you know, actually, uh, that kind of brings me to the last question I had, which is sort of a broader thing. It's not, not about the Nazis, really. <laughs> the Nazi Argentina has been discussed at length by many other podcasts. <laughs> what I would ask about was a different kind of connection that this military junta had to continental right-wing movements that are sort of descended from Nazism. Uh, because when I was doing a little bit of research about the junta and the people involved, one thing that really stuck out to me is the fact that uh, Masera, the leader of the junta, who is a significant character in the film uh, Argentina 1985, he had some interesting ties to continental far-right movements that seem somewhat unusual, I think, uh, in the context of the Cold War. These kinds of transatlantic ties, I don't think they come up that often. And this specific tie was that Masera, who we should mention was of Italian descent, was active in Italian neo-fascist circles in Europe. Specifically, he was a member of the Propaganda Due P2 Lodge, this uh, fake Masonic order set up by Italian fascists probably with some kind of ties to NATO to be used uh, as a kind of a militia movement to put down left-wingers uh, across Europe, basically. So I think that's a really interesting connection, especially because that is central to the story of the Italian Operation Gladio, which is, of course, where this podcast gets its name. <laughs> so, Kevin, I was, yeah, and so for me, for that reason, more than anything, uh, I thought that was super interesting. Just to, to yeah, last question, uh, Kevin, what do you know about Masera's ties to the kind of global far-right, this global, basically neo-fascist, anti-communist network. Uh, what was Argentina's role in this broader, you know, international Cold War and all that? Absolutely. Masera was chief of the Navy. He mm -hmm. was actually appointed by Perón during the democratic era. And we know today Propaganda Due or Pedue, as it was called, doesn't exist anymore. It was disbanded after sort of the Grand Lodge of Italian Freemasonry took away its recognition. But records show he was a member of that organization. Now, not a lot is known. I think this, uh, this should probably be researched more. But the truth is that we know that the Argentinian dictatorship was not, you know, something, a, an individual case. It was part of a larger continental plan. And Macera's connections to continental fascism or the continental European far right gives us a little indication of how uh, connections among these far right movements might have run deeper than we thought. It might not just have been part of uh, Americans' plans, but also might have, you know, been linked to the far right in other parts of the world as well. But this really needs to be researched more. Mm -hmm. People know like even the number of member. Uh, and also, by the way, another prominent member of Propaganda Due, Silvio Berlusconi, who is not oh, just of course. known for his uh, drug-fueled prostitution yeah. parties. <laughs> but he was also a member of that organization. Yeah, yeah, yes. And another guy, interesting guy, uh, we could do a lot of this guy, uh, Michele Sindona, the Vatican banker, which ties in Operation Gladio to a whole other 70s scandal. And I believe Sindona was, uh, he was connected in some distant way to uh, film producer Robert Evans. And I think... 
I'm pretty sure Sedona, this Gladio figure, was somehow involved in the financing of either The Godfather or maybe Robert Evans' earlier stuff. I think it's very funny. Oh, wow. It's just, yeah, I love all these kind of crazy links. It's the kind of thing that you can really, like, you know, drive yourself insane about once you once you find these figures, you know. Uh, many people have driven themselves insane with this kind of, you know, parapolitics, they call it. Uh, but it just, it's, yeah, I think it's very interesting. And I think part of what this shows is that, you know, I think that you know, Americans have a very chauvinistic attitude towards South America. They see South American countries as isolated because they're a different hemisphere. They don't see South America as connected to, you know, broader trends in politics. But uh, obviously, South America has always been so essential to so much of you know, 18th, 19th, and 20th, and now 21st century history. It's a huge part of the economic world system. And for that reason, any kind of political, major political fight, whether it's 20th century fascism in World War II, whether it's the Cold War that follows it, and whether it's modern geostrategic tensions today, there is always going to be an arena of that conflict in South America. And I feel like Argentina in particular has had some especially fierce frontiers of these broader global global conflicts, whether it's the fight against fascism or the you know the later fight against communism. Absolutely. These are... Uh... The handbook that the dictatorship used, the tactics used, the, the objectives of the dictatorship. We know that the far right was looking at what is happening in other countries. And if we talk about disciplining society, I would like to think that what happened in Argentina served as some form of discipline yeah. and also helps to explain why coups stopped being popular in the 1980s, which is yeah. with the fight of human rights organizations and the blood of this appeared, at least they opened the way into putting these people on trial and to show that they there was more than just bare impunity that was expecting them if they interrupted democracy again. By the way, uh, Maceda was, uh, ended up being convicted of 83 homicides, 623 illegitimate abductions, 267 cases of torture, 23 accounts of slavery, and 11 cases of abduction of minors, among other crimes. Yeah, well... I guess not to end this episode on to Griminote. These stories are very important. We need to keep them in mind no matter where they happen. And we need to just say nunca mas anywhere. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you, Kevin. Really always a pleasure. I learned so much in this episode and I'm sure our audience is really going to be interested in all of this. Also, speaking of nunca mas, another cry that was very popular today in the square, mm -hmm. because we know that some people are still walking around today uh, freely after having committed atrocities. The cry is, como a los nazis les va a pasar, a donde vayas los iremos a buscar. Like the Nazis, it'll happen to them. Wherever they go, we'll, look, we'll go looking for them. Oh, that's great. That, 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 that's great. Well, well, thank you so much, Kevin. Anything you'd like to plug? Any last words? No, I just uh, hope people remain interested in the history of Argentina and the history of Latin America. Thank you, guys for helping get the word around about this movie and this story. Oh, absolutely. We got to come back to Argentina. There's so, there's so much we can talk about here. And I think Americans need to learn more about the terrible things that have been done in their name in other parts of the world. So just an invitation to you. <laughs> yes, <laughs> Just an invitation to keep reading. Yes, we do. All right. Well, thank you so much. And yeah, th thank you guys for joining us. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.